are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Rootbound is blossoming thanks to the magic of pollination. Bees, butterflies, bats, even the wind. They all play their part. Pollination, the birds and the bees of plants. Pickles. Let's talk pickling. But first, thank you for listening. My name is Steve, and this is Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. And each week, I invite a guest who joins me on the show to share with us all about a plant that means something to them. Then I share with a guest about a plant that means something to me. And through this process, we can all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. Now, our guest today is going to talk about uh, a specific vegetable that is often pickled. You probably know the one. But I would like to talk about pickling in general. It's a very interesting concept and something I've experimented with a little bit. Um, but first, let's talk about that word. You know that I love, like, etymologies. And uh, the word pickle comes from some kind of, like, Germanic or Low Dutch or something that I forget exactly. But it's in that Germanic family. And it's something like peckle or pickle or pickle. And it referred to a, uh, they say a sauce, but more like a liquid that you would, like, preserve meat in, I guess. So originally it referred to like maybe brining meat to to preserve it, like in a really salty solution, which you can use to preserve meat. But then someone had the bright idea to use that same liquid with vegetables, and that's how we got pickled vegetables. They're vegetables put in the pickling liquid. And in fact, sometimes that liquid can be called pickle itself. So it's, it's very interesting... Um, linguistic thing here that you could put vegetables in pickle to pickle them and then they become pickles in fact i i was trying to figure out is there anything else like in english where uh when you perform the verb on something when you pickle something it becomes the noun form of that verb so when you pickle a cucumber it becomes a pickle and i actually cannot think of any like specific examples like that and i was trying to google around i even asked some artificial intelligence and i couldn't find any really great examples of that of like when you perform the verb on something it becomes the noun of that verb the closest i got is when you ship something it becomes a shipment but this is more like you pickle something it becomes a pickle it's the same word i think it's very interesting uh uh phenomenon in english having to do with pickles i think i've talked too much about pickles now uh, but let's meet our guest and hear her take on pickling. That's a dilly of a pickle. Hi, Audrey. Welcome to Rootbound. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. Do you have a plant to share with us today? I indeed do. I am here to talk to you about the cucumber, Cucumis sativus, and um, very specifically, the pickling cucumber. So, um, uh... Uh, admission here. Uh, if I, I think I like every food, but if I had to pick a food I don't like, it would be pickles. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I am here to change your mind. Right, and maybe. I feel like I feel like as I'm getting older, I feel like I'm getting a maybe I'm getting more into pickles. Also, since I'm like into plants and stuff, and like all these like anyway, I feel like I'm turning the corner on pickles. But it's still like if you if you had to say, hey St- Steve, what food do you not like? Pickles would be the one, and it's been like that since I was a kid. 
Well, I, I'll say when you make pickles yourself, they do taste significantly different than the store-bought ones. So maybe that'll be the, the thing that pushes you over the edge. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about it. First of all, um, why are cucumbers, specifically pickling cucumbers, meaningful to you? Well, um, so I would say that my family and especially my brother and I have um, a bit of an obsession with uh, with pickles and very specifically a type of pickle that we call Bindrider pickles. Um, wait, they, wait, Bind, how do you how do you spell that? Right? Bindrider. Um, <laughs> you know what? I don't know because it is actually named after um, a family friend of my grandparents, uh, Rosie and Franz Bindrider. Oh, I think it's okay. B-I-N-D-R-E-I-T-E-R. Oh, it's like a German name or something. Yeah, so they, they actually immigrated to um, Ohio from Austria in the 1950s, and um, they lived in my grandparents' neighborhood, and my my dad grew up with their kids, um, and uh, they were really uh, wonderful friends to my grandparents for decades upon decades, and, um, and Rosie uh, grew a very large garden, which I have this much very small um, memory of. My grandmother says it was absolutely fantastic, um, and she was a really prolific canner and preserver, um, and and was very um, generous in in sharing the things that she put up. So um, I have really fond childhood memories of um, of Bindrider pickles, which are actually a type of refrigerator pickle, not truly canned. Um, but but yeah, um, they they're absolutely wonderful, and uh, and my family is obsessed with them, and now I make them. <laughs> and now just to be clear, I think I understand this, but the Bindrider pickle is like only thing, I guess, in your family, and I guess maybe the Bindrider family, or is it? Yeah, like, yeah, okay. yeah. It's yep. not like it's not like a, a very unknown classification that you might be able to pick up at like a weird farmers market. It's like a totally Correct. cool, cool. That's yep, very it, cool. it has more to do with the recipe, which actually is really interesting. Um, it, it, I think, it's a little bit unique in terms of pickle recipes because it contains horseradish and turmeric in addition to like dill and garlic and. Um, and peppercorns and some of the things that you you typically find in pickles. So, um, okay. I, I set out to make it uh, or to recreate it when I started growing a garden several years ago. Okay, this is very interesting. I feel like we want to get back into some stuff about the plant first. But while we're sure. on pickles, t- t- tell me about pickles. You've mentioned a few things. You mentioned like your typical pickle. You mentioned refrigerator pickles, not canned pickles. Just just let's. Tell us about pickles. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, I would not claim to be an expert on pickles necessarily, but um, I do know that there are a couple of different kinds or different ways that you can preserve cucumbers in a pickling fashion. Um, one of them is like a fermented, um, I think it's called lacto-fermentation, mm-hmm. um, you know, done sort of like sauerkraut or, or kimchi or, or any of those um, fermented. Um, there are canned pickles, which have a very high vinegar content to them, mm. um, and that's where the tang comes from. And then there are refrigerator pickles, which are not shelf stable, um, but are a version of um, of vinegar based pickles uh, that have to be refrigerated all the time. But you know, you sort of make a brine and, and pour the brine in with uh, with the cucumbers and a bunch of other stuff that you want to put in there, um, and then they infuse over a couple of weeks and then they're delicious and um, keep for uh, in our experience about a year if you can make them last that long in the fridge which ours never do interesting okay that that makes sense okay yeah like and i've uh, the okay yes i've done a little bit of lacto fermentation of other things not Mm -hmm. not cucumbers because as i said that's not my favorite um and that's a really interesting process but then yeah that um that pickling with vinegar which you know is an interesting thing to think about because when you do a uh, lacto fermentation you're kind of making a vinegar like you're getting a sourness going on yeah yeah it's different bacteria i guess maybe maybe uh acetobacteria versus lactobacteria but but yeah then and then the 
the canning process is probably just you're probably just like pressure cooking a, a vinegar pickle but instead of storing in the fridge i guess right exactly yeah. there's no like there's no canning process with the refrigerator pickles which makes them like really easy um for the beginner preserver uh to put up uh if you have an abundant harvest which is great. yeah totally and and like canning is a little bit intimidating to me i've, I've only done it once with my grandma and it like i always feel like i'm going to mess something up and give myself uh you know like botulism, botulism. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so. yeah. Very good. Okay, well, that's great. Um, well, then maybe, uh, maybe before we get into the specific recipe uh, of the the bin dryer pickle, let's talk about the plant. Like, what is your relationship with these pickles? And also, maybe just some interesting, like, dazzling details and fun facts about uh, cucumbers themselves. Like, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's yeah. one of those plants that people maybe take for granted as a, as a as a garden plant. But I'm curious yeah. what, what you have to say about. Absolutely. Well, I did some digging um, specifically into the history because I didn't know that much about the history of cucumbers. um, And I found out that they are native to India um, and have actually been cultivated for about 3000 years starting in Western Asia, um, and then sort of spread to Greece and Italy, um, and then made their way to England um, and France also. And um, actually, if you look back at the Latin name, uh, cucumis means cucumber. It's, you know, derived from the Greek for cucumber. And then sativus uh, is from the Latin uh, that means that uh, something that is sown. Mm -hmm. So it's very focused on like the agricultural uses and not so much the native uses um, of the cucumber. So I thought that was kind of fascinating. Um, Yeah, it's come up a few times, the sativa, which, yeah, sown or cultivated. A lot of those like really common garden plants have that uh, that uh, specific epithet of sativas or sativums. So very interesting. Yeah, um, and and according to the University of Missouri, it's one of America's top five garden vegetables, um, and uh, and Americans eat you know just kind of a crazy amount of them. Um, we're said to consume nine pounds of cucumbers per capita annually. So Whoa. <laughs> right. And thinking about how like small cucumbers are and, and relatively light, that seems like a lot of cucumbers. Yeah, to I me. guess, you know, maybe they're on all burgers in the United States, which has been some, some sometimes a bane for me. True, um, true. Uh, and then I guess there's other things. But yeah, I, I guess, I don't know. I, I like cucumbers. It's the pickling that's not I'm not into. So I probably, I don't know if I eat nine pounds, but I might eat my fair share. Yeah, right, right. Um, in terms of growing, uh, there, there's a reason they're in the top five. Like, they're fairly easy to grow. Um, you know, they perform best when they're trellised. Um, they actually prefer to be direct seeded, which I think kind of bucks conventional mm-hmm. wisdom. Um, and I always start them indoors. So next year, I got to figure out how I can um, direct seed them uh, into my garden because I guess they don't like their roots being jostled so much. But um, there are two types of cucumbers kind of loosely defined uh, slicing and pickling um, and the one that I grow is called the national pickling cucumber so that's oh, cool. the one I've always grown mm-hmm. interesting interesting and then yeah how long have you been growing them like wh- like yeah what's what's your relationship with growing them I think this is my sixth year growing them um, and I started off with just one or two plants this year I'm doing nine plants which kind of feels insane to me <laughs> like it's gonna be so <laughs> many pickles but um but uh, you know, it, they're easy to give away because my family is is really into them, and um, and yeah, I, and uh, two years ago I actually had some some problems with a, car- a common pest called uh, the cucumber beetle, mm. uh, and so my yields were like dramatically lower. So um, you know, not taking any chances this year and growing kind of an obscene amount. <laughs> what one plant? How many cucumbers can you get from one? Well, it depends on the variety. 
Um, and it depends on how frequently you're picking them because mm-hmm. they're one of those plants that if you are continuously picking, um, they'll continuously produce. Mm. So um, I don't know that there's like a maybe maybe um, experts have a, a average, but um, if you're picking regularly and if you have um, a really longer growing season, which like we um, I'm in Ohio and, and our uh, last average frost date is this week. I planted mine in almost two weeks ago, so I mm. really was able to extend the growing season that way. Um, so yeah, they, they sort of uh, respond well to babying, I think. In interesting, interesting. I need to grow some cucumbers. I did one year in this house, and I, well, I'm, I've, I'm starting to realize that, that maybe I'm not the best gardener. Like, <laughs> the stuff that does the best is the stuff that's more perennial edible stuff in my yard. Like, I've, I just, like, tomatoes fail all the time, um, and I worry. Tomatoes are trickier than people give them credit for, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe <laughs> that's it. So maybe I should try uh, cucumbers at some point. I think I had, I had a volunteer cucumber show up. A couple oh, that's of years cool. ago, which was pretty interesting. I don't know where it came from. Just, oh, that's a cucumber. <laughs> Do you compost? I bet it was the compost. Uh, maybe it was. Yeah, you know, you're, you're probably right. It probably was from the compost. Yeah, that's I get fruit. squash plants almost every year from my yeah. compost. I don't know what kind they are, but I just like plant them out and go have fun. Yeah, very interesting. <laughs> um, so yeah, what, do you have any other fun facts or dazzling details about the cucumber? Um, I do. So uh, I learned in my research that uh, pickles specifically can be found in seventy percent of all American households. So they are, you know, <laughs> quite <laughs> prolific. Yeah, I think <laughs> even though I don't like them, my wife likes them. So we definitely have pickles in the fridge. So there you go. Yeah. You, you contributed to that seventy percent then. Indeed, indeed. Um, and there are some like very um, atypical ways that you can use cucumber as aside from you know slicing and eating or pickling. Um, I learned that pureed cucumber can soothe sunburn, kind of like aloe. Oh, um, okay, yeah, I get so that. I might be trying that uh, this year, considering I'm very fair-skinned and prone to sunburn. Um, It can also uh, be rubbed on noisy hinges to lubricate them. I don't know the science behind it, but the internet told me so. Uh, I'm going to look that up. (laughs) We have a couple really noisy hinges. There you go. That, uh, because we just had a baby, are are quite the detriment when she's sleeping and we open (laughs) one of those noisy hinges. So Cucumbers to the rescue. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to be smothering, like slathering my door in cucumber. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know if there's any other ill effects as far as uh, over time, but that's a very interesting thing. I'm going to read more about that. (laughs) Well, and while you're at it, while you're, you know, doing home improvement (laughs) with cucumbers, I also read that um, they can remove like tarnish and um, build up residue on like faucets and sinks and stainless steel because they are kind of like a little bit um, corrosive or the minerals in it are sort of eat away at some of that stuff. So yeah. Wow. Those are, I was not expecting non-food uses for cucumber. (laughs) (laughs) I I tried to come with a, a wide variety and i didn't know that you didn't like pickles but i'm glad i did yeah uh, that's good i ha- i mean even if i don't get into them i still could use them i guess um with it with a sunburn thing that i guess it makes sense you always think about those like uh you know cartoons of people with cucumbers over their eyes so right like, like uh they do have i guess some kind of like skin anti-inflammatory s- right yeah, effect yep. yeah interesting interesting yep my last my last dazzling detail is that uh, world cucumber day is june 14th so um we have about you know yeah we have we have a reason to celebrate uh, when June rolls around. Indeed, indeed, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Um, all right, uh, I was just thinking about when it comes to cucumbers. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of pickles. I do like cucumbers. My maybe uh, not so common use of cucumber that I really love is a gin and tonic with cucumber Ooh. and black pepper, which I believe is the Hendrix Ooh. gin. Uh, yeah. That's their like uh, signature gin and tonic, um, and it's really really refreshing. 
Oh, I've never tried it with black pepper. I'm going to have to add that to my yeah. uh, repertoire for the yeah, weekend. Yeah, crack some black pepper over it, put a slice of cucumber in, really, really refreshing. Also, the Very Pimm's cool. Cup is a great uh, beverage that has cucumber in it, so that's really fun. Very cool. Um, okay, let's get to that Ben Dryder pickle recipe. Tell me about <laughs> Are you willing to share? I don't know, want to take family secrets away, but it sounds very enticing. I am willing to share. Um, and actually, uh, so l- let me back up. One of the reasons that this recipe is also um, holds a very soft spot in my heart is because um, when I started growing a garden five or six years ago, I wanted to recreate this pickle recipe. Um, and so I called my grandmother and I said, you know, do you have Rosie's pickle recipe? And she said, well, I don't, but I'll give her a call and, um, and, and get it for you. And um, I have never been happier to miss a call from my grandmother in my life because she left me just the most charming voicemail um, <laughs> Wonderful. where she relays the pickle recipe to me. Um, and to this day, I have never written it down because instead of looking at a recipe card every year, I go back and I listen to this voicemail from my grandmother um, that, that shares this pickle recipe. So, yeah, that's that's how I uh, how I recreate it every year. Okay, well, I think maybe on that note, then maybe let's just maybe if you are you willing to share that maybe instead of you telling us the recipe, maybe we can hear from your grandma. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, let's do that. And then we'll come back with a different plan. Cool. Audrey, I want to give you this recipe before I forget it. Uh, So I'll just give you a voice now. Five cups of water. One half to three fourths cup of vinegar and one fourth cup of salt. And uh, I, she puts peppercorn in, and that boils. You have to boil all of that together. Then uh, in each jar, she puts um, uh, grated horseradish, and she puts a half a teaspoon of turmeric, and she puts dill, and she just kind of you you know puts whatever she wants in, in there, and then um, she. Um, Put the pickles in, and with the, uh, and then you pour the boiling water over the pickles and everything else that's in there, and then that's it. She says, and you, and she says you have to. Um, uh, she always didn't make that many. She says that would make about three jars. And she says you should uh, leave them in the refrigerator. That's if you have any questions, give me a call. Bye. Well, thank you, Audrey, for sharing about uh, cucumbers and specifically pickles, and more specifically the Bendrider pickle with us. Uh, do you mind if I share a plant with you? Please do. Awesome. So um, sometimes I try to make the plants that we talk about like related to each other. I didn't do that this time. I picked a kind of entirely random plant that is That's not related fine. to cucumbers in any way. But I was out in my yard, and this happens all the time. I'm like, what are what are you? <laughs> and today, it was some grass. I don't mow my lawn very regularly. I like to say it's for the pollinators, but it's also because I'm lazy. Um, <laughs> Two there, things can be true. Totally. And there was some grass that was getting pretty tall and was starting to get seed heads on it. And I was like, what are you? And and it should have been obvious, I guess, because it's a very common grass, but it was uh, Kentucky bluegrass. Oh, cool. So that's my plant that I'm going to show today. And um, just first quiz here, where do you think Kentucky bluegrass is from? Well, I guess the easy answer is Kentucky, but the fact that you're asking the question makes me think it's from Florida or something. Yeah, it's actually from Europe and Asia. Okay, that makes which, sense. Which is interesting. And, and, the, and, and we'll get into that a little bit more um, 
because the story of how it became Kentucky bluegrass is very interesting, but also a little bit still nebulous to me. I tried to do a bunch of research into this, and I got somewhere with it, but maybe not all the way. But let's talk a little bit more about it. First of all, just it's meaningful to me because it grows in my yard. That's that's like the easy answer for this one. It's there, um, but it's also like a pretty like prevalent plant in some other ways, um, which we'll talk about in a bit. But let's talk about some a few other things. Okay, scientific name is Poa pretensis. Poa, the, the genus, uh, is Greek, which means fodder, hmm. and pretensis means meadow. So it's it was in Europe and Asia, it's a very common fodder plant for, for uh, livestock. Okay. So that's where its name comes from. Hmm. Um, but, you know, here it's it's just really called bluegrass and specifically Kentucky bluegrass. But I was like, well, I, I read that it's not from here. It's, it's, it's from Europe and Asia. And they don't call it Kentucky blue. They must not call it Kentucky bluegrass there, right. even though like the Wikipedia page is Kentucky bluegrass. So I translated it. Like I, I checked the Wikipedia page for some other languages and other found some other places. So here's a few different names for it in a few European languages. Okay. Um, in German, it is called Wiesenrispengras, which means meadow panicle grass. So panicles are like the little things where the seeds hang from. That's like a mm-hmm. botany term. In uh, in French, it's I'm going to butcher this. It's called Paturant des Prés, which I think also means something like meadow grass. Um, and then in Spanish, I found Poa de los Prados, which means Poa of the Meadows. And then in Dutch, it is Veldbeemd grass, which I didn't know what that translated to, but probably something similar to field yeah. grass or something. So anyway, it's a pretty common plant in Europe. It's like really uh, common, but it is somehow come to be contact connected with kentucky um yep would you say something well so i'm just wondering if so there's there's obviously a, a large um agriculture and like horse horses mm-hmm. um are are cult- cultivated they're you know yeah bred there yes yeah bred there um and because it's like a fodder grass is that why it's so widespread in kentucky yes it is definitely related to that it was very like well well thought um let me see how I want to best weave this tale. Um, so the area of that area, there's an area of Kentucky that's called the Bluegrass Region. Okay. Um, and it's this area kind of in the northern part of the state where uh, uh, Frankfort is, the, the capital. And um, and this region has this, um, you know, pre, uh, uh, pre-colonization, apparently it was a... a, a known as an oak savanna this this hmm. kind of area so this savanna with lots of grasses and then spotted with very you know sparsely separated oak trees and then this is a little bit off topic but it's a concept i'm really fascinated with by it was broken up by these things called cane breaks which are uh, these just massive com- thick colonies of a of a river cane or, 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 oh. or a kind of cane and it's kind of bamboo but it's a bamboo native to north america and this kind of um Ecology is almost extinct, the cane break. Huh. But that used to be like how like large parts of the country were just like for miles and miles and miles, it was just like super, super thick cane. And and it like held all sorts of interesting ecological purposes. But when, you know, colonizers came in, that's really annoying because you really couldn't <laughs> get through it. And so uh, they, they're almost gone. And they're, I was reading some interesting um, movements to try to like rebuild some. And, you know, it used to be like 50,000 acres of cane. Yeah, and now I was reading they're like trying to restore twenty nine acres of cane in some places. And, wow. Uh, anyway, uh, a little bit of a bummer as far as like why that went. But it, the, uh, it's an interesting story of how you have this area that was like that, 
and in relatively short time is now known for the grass that is not from there. Right, right. And it's because, though, that the, the land was, had really great soil. And um, so when farmers came in post uh, the Revolutionary War, and they started growing all sorts of crops there, tobacco, hemp, apparently was really popular. Um, they were growing, I think, the, apparently the first vineyard in the United States was in that region. No kidding. Um, and one of the things that makes the soil really good is that it's got a really high calcium content. And so people um, started noticing that the animals that were grazing there were stronger, particularly the horses, oh. because there's more calcium, and so their bones were stronger. And so um, that's also where the, the like reputation for thoroughbred horses came in because feeding the horses this you know bluegrass that was being grown there made them stronger because the, the soil is much more high in calcium content huh no kidding yeah so That's i thought really that was cool. very very fascinating so it's pretty ma- amazing how fast that area went from like not having this grass at all to like being known as bluegrass and if some historians out there know more about this i would love to know no, no more but i read that the um that people started moving to kentucky really quickly after the Revolutionary War. Frankfurt was founded in 1783, um, which was, I think, the same year the, the war ended. Or Don't quote me on these dates. <laughs> but, but, you know, all around the same time. And then I, I found a, a, a Masonic review from 1858 that calls it the Bluegrass region already. So, huh. you know, 60, 70 years yeah. uh, from when presumably there wasn't a ton of bluegrass to being known as the Bluegrass region. Um, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, is it, it so? Is it considered an invasive species just based on how quickly it it established itself and I, took over? Yeah, definitely by some definitions it yeah. could be, um, but it's also a grass that we tend to love. Uh, like it is the most common grass in like lawn mixes, hmm. so that's the reason why it's in my yard. At some point, somebody planted grass seed, and there's a few different species. Um, and it's also really common in sports fields. So football, some football oh. stadiums use it. Some uh, Major League Baseball use it. Some uh, in Europe, it's really popular in soccer pitches. Hmm. So it's, you know, and so it's those grasses that, you know, we don't consider things invasive if we like them, even yeah, though, it, right. it, you know, in the American <laughs> lawn, it, I think it could be considered, most of those are invasive species if you think about them. I've yeah. been, since we moved into this house, I've been lifting a lot of sod and can confirm it is hard to get rid of grass once it's taken over totally. and established. Totally. So it's an interesting question, you know, like I'm, I am like slowly trying to get rid of my lawn. Um, and I, I have a long-term goal of trying to replace everything in my yard with native plants, but it's a really hard challenge. Super yeah. hard. Um, yeah. So, um, so yeah, whether it's invasive or not, that's open to interpretation. Um, oh, this is interesting. Um, before I get to the last little bit, do you know why it's called Kentucky bluegrass? Blue. I do not. Blue I was going to ask you if it, if, if it, once it goes to seed, is it, is, does it turn blue? You got it. This is so fascinating because I've seen it in like people's yards and stuff like that. And you're like, it just looks green. I mean, maybe if I'm thinking it's a little bit blue tinge, but I actually right. don't think so. It is the seed head has this kind of purpley blue quality. If you look up pictures online of the seed heads. Cool. But the way we use it, we never see that. Right. So, so like, we know it's bluegrass, but nobody, at least, like, people who live in the city or the suburbs and aren't feeding it to animals don't ever see the blue quality of the bluegrass, which is really fascinating. And if you're, if you're grazing, um, grazing livestock, probably it wouldn't really get to the seed stage in that circumstance either because they'd eat it down too quickly, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess it depends on how you're managing it. Sometimes yeah. people like seed heads to let things go to seed because you can get or the like more, like... Or, like, pasture rotation, that kind of thing. Right. Um, oh, on pasture rotation, I guess... I. This is not 100% sure, 
But in some of the references I found, it seems like maybe bluegrass started to come in as a rotation crop for things like tobacco. Oh, okay. Um, like a multi-year rotation. It was like saying they would do tobacco and then clover and then bluegrass. And then once the bluegrass has been there for a few years, you can till it and do tobacco again. But yeah. maybe that, and maybe then the horses were eating it and like, man, these horses are strong. Oh, maybe we should stick with the bluegrass. Yeah, so, it's, it's funny how something that, that started off as something pretty ecologically sound with that kind of crop rotation yeah. can quickly become kind of a monoculture. <laughs> totally, totally. Uh, very, so, uh, yeah, very, very interesting stuff. Um, so so that, I guess, I think leads us to the other well-known definition of the word bluegrass, which I'm sure you can imagine what it is. I would assume it's musical. Indeed, bluegrass music. And so I, 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 I didn't know. Like, I, I mean, I knew it was related to Kentucky. I knew there was bluegrass in Kentucky. But, like, why is this music called bluegrass? And it turns out that is a pretty easy answer. And fans of bluegrass out there probably are shouting already. Uh, <laughs> the answer to this is that uh, there is a uh, the, the guy who is known to have invented this style is a guy named Bill Monroe. And his band was called Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. Ah, and they were okay. from Kentucky, and okay. um, and so he started playing the style of music that became really popular. Um, his his um, banjo player was a guy named Earl Scruggs, which really kind of popularized the style the of bluegrass playing, yep. uh, of bluegrass banjo playing, and so it became very popular. And so other people started doing it, and they started referring it to bluegrass. You know, so it's inspired by the name of the state and that region of the state. Um, and he named his band the Bluegrass Boys, and so that's why it's known as bluegrass music. And it was around like the nineteen. 19- well, his band, I guess, was far- started in the his band was started in the in the late '30s, but really it was kind of late '40s into the '50s when it started to become m- the word bluegrass music started to become known. Sure, sure. Yeah. Huh. So a rel- you know a relatively newer American genre of music, which is yeah. kind of fascinating. It is. Yeah. You think about it, you might think about it as being much more old folk music. And the thing is, it, it kind of did exist for a longer time. The bluegrass music is inspired by like Scottish styles of music it's music that came over from scotland and then mixed okay. with uh you know the banjo is actually originally an african instrument that was kind of hmm. recreated by uh, enslaved people based off of what they knew and so it's kind of this mishmash that may- maybe was evolving as folk music for a long time i was reading some stuff about how there's these mu- kinds of music that would be based off of like you know scottish jigs and reels played at like barns you know it, <laughs> uh, but you know i think i think uh it was around the right time when just popular music was really popular, non-classical music, and the radio was starting to become a thing that you could you could create something called bluegrass based off of this folk music. So that's interesting, and also bluegrass music is also that also makes bluegrass meaningful to me because I'm from Texas. I'm, I've got a lot of southern roots, and that kind of music has been around a lot. And something I've listened to, and it's you know it's a it's a cool it's a cool style of music and. Uh, and yeah, I, I like it a lot. So that's also why bluegrass is meaningful to me. Well, it's it's interesting that um, it seems like bluegrass music has established itself with the same rapid pace that uh, the actual Kentucky bluegrass established itself in Kentucky. So that sort of brings it full circle. Indeed. I, I think we can just uh, leave it there. That was a great way to wrap up the show. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me.
That was Bluegrass Breakdown by Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, the founder of the bluegrass genre. And now I'm going to take you on a bit of a tangent that's not really plant-related and is barely bluegrass-related, but it's something that came into my mind as I was thinking about bluegrass. Uh, so bear with me. So as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm from Texas. I grew up in that area. And, you know, bluegrass is not from Texas, but there's a lot of bluegrass, like, spread. And so I remember knowing about bluegrass from when I was pretty young and hearing bluegrass music. But when I think about the word bluegrass... Uh, the song that comes into my head is this one. Do you know it? So this is the theme for the movie Raising Arizona. And this is a movie that I really like loved when I was a kid, when I first watched it. I loved it much later, maybe in high school, when I really started to appreciate it more. And uh, this is the theme song that, that happens throughout the movie. And I thought that, you know, my, my thinking always was that this was some kind of old bluegrass song that they used for the movie. But it turns out that it's actually composed by Carter Burwell. He's the prolific composer who composed all of the Coen Brothers movies. He also composed music for tons of other movies. He's, like, really prolific. And he wrote this song, which is called Way Out There. And um, it's a really great bluegrass tune but it was made just for the movie which is kind of an interesting choice because you know Arizona's not necessarily like what you think of when you think of bluegrass but as we learned in the episode you know that part of Kentucky wasn't always what you thought of when you thought of bluegrass uh, bluegrass being from Europe but anyway so I was thinking about this I was reading reading about this song and it's a really interesting story the guy who played the banjo on this was a guy named Ben Freed and he was actually a optometrist from New York City which is not what you'd expect when you think of uh a banjo player, particularly a bluegrass banjo player. Um, but uh, this is a guy who got really into bluegrass banjo when he was really young, and he kept with it his whole life, and he was really well-respected as being a really great banjo player, um, in addition to an optometrist. And I think he even knew the Coen brothers, because maybe he was their optometrist. At least that's what I read on Carter Burwell's webpage. Um, so that's the story of the song. But then I started thinking about the movie Raising Arizona, and... Uh, I'm going to spoil the ending to Raising Arizona right now, so be warned if you haven't seen this um, over 35-year-old film, <laughs> I'm going to spoil the ending. But I mentioned how I, like, I, I remember seeing this movie as a kid and really liking it. I remember seeing it in high school, and when I was starting to get into film, you know, my background is in filmmaking, like starting to realize, oh, the Coen brothers are great, and this is a really great example. It's a really cool movie. Um, but I recently just watched this movie again, uh, and now that I have a kid, it really hit different, and I wasn't expecting that, and particularly the end of the movie. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to play this last little monologue uh, from Nicolas Cage's character, H.I. Uh, McDonough, and he's talking about his uh, wife, Ed, and uh, short for Edwina, and he's talking about a dream he has at the end of the film. And, yeah, uh, watching this, which is, you know, it's a comedy movie, but watching this more recently... Um, it had to be pretty emotional, and so I don't know if it's got the same effect on you, but that's what we're going to do to end the show. I'm just going to play this segment from the movie Raising Arizona. If you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, like I said, um, but I think it's fair. It's been out for a long time. But here we go, and then we will end the show. But still, I hadn't dreamt nothing about me and Ed until the end. And this was cloudier, because it was years 
years away. But I saw an old couple being visited by their children and all their grandchildren, too. And the old couple wasn't screwed up, and neither were their kids or their grandkids. And I don't know. You tell me this whole dream. Was it wishful thinking? Was I just fleeing reality like I know I'm liable to do? But me and Ed, we can be good too. And it seemed real. It seemed like us. And it seemed like, well, our home. If not Arizona, then a land not too far away, where all parents are strong and wise and capable, and all children are happy and beloved. I don't know. Maybe it was Utah. My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Audrey Hausman. Audrey is a marketer and political strategist in Akron, Ohio. You can follow her adventures in Lake House homesteading at Teal House on the Hill on Instagram. There will be a link in the show notes. If you are a fan of this podcast and you want to help support the show, visit rootboundpodcast.com support to see how you can help us out, including supporting the show on Patreon. I would be so appreciative. Rootbound is hosted by Bluegrass Boy Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside, you could pick a peck of pickling cucumbers and try your hand at the Bindrider pickle. Pollination, the birds and the bees of plants. <laughs>